For nearly a century, California sterilized women in its prisons and hospitals, often without their consent. Government officials did it in the name of eugenics, of trying to curtail the number of working-class people and communities of color. The Golden State apologized for its actions in 2003, but didn't ban the practice until 2014. Now the state will try to right the wrong of its forced sterilization program with a historic move. They want to pay survivors reparations. I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Today's Thursday, July 15, 2021. U.S. COVID cases have doubled in the past three weeks due to the Delta variant. The European Union unveils a green deal to make Europe the world's first climate-neutral continent. And a robot in Japan keeps getting fired from jobs because it doesn't do them right. May we recommend Bender Bending Rodriguez as a replacement? California's new budget has set aside $4.5 million for the estimated 600 survivors of the state's sterilization era. Today, we talked to Wendy Carrillo, the assembly member who represents parts of Northeastern and East LA. She sponsored the legislative bill that will create California's reparations effort. And we also talked to the activists who have brought this dark chapter of American history to the public. California sterilized more than 20,000 women, by far the biggest number of women of any U.S. state. The procedures ruined lives and families and represented reproductive injustice at its worst. But the horrors of this era still barely make it into the history books, let alone become part of public memory. Assemblymember Wendy Carrillo hopes to change that. And during our interview, something happened that only a podcast made in California could offer. Oh, is that an earthquake? Uh-oh, up in Sacramento? Oh my God, there's an earthquake. Are you okay? Is that an earthquake? Yeah. It was real. It's still this going. Anyway, to talk about the legislative earthquake, here's Assemblywoman Carrillo. It has been decades in the making. You know, the first time that I actually heard about this was when I was in college. I was at Cal State LA taking Chicano studies classes in the early 2000s. I must have been like 22 at the time. And I found out what happened to immigrant Mexican women at LA County Hospital right in my backyard in the district that I now represent up until the late 1960s, early 70s. And there's a wonderful documentary called No Mas Bebes, No More Babies, that actually addresses that and how Mexican immigrant women that did not speak Spanish were there pregnant, were delivering a child, delivering a baby baby and maybe perhaps signed something under duress. They delivered that baby and only did not recognize that they had actually maybe signed something or did not know that they would be unknowingly sterilized. And so they never knew why they could never get pregnant again. A documentary released last year called Belly of the Beast highlights how California prison authorities continue this illegal practice for decades. It highlights survivors and whistleblowers alike. We were getting hundreds of letters about horrible medical abuses every month. He did a pelvic exam. He gave me some kind of test and said I had some uh, fibroid. I was told that I had cancer cells. They told me that I had to have my ovaries removed. I had no choice. We actually used to call them the surgeries of the month because they were happening so frequently. So many people were getting hysterectomies. That was a cure-all, that's what it was. Why did the state of California sterilize so many women? Well, you have to remember uh, and look back at history. 
in the early 1900s, the state of California did not look like the state of California now. And so eugenics laws were passed in an effort to curb population. And in many ways, of course, this impacted immigrant communities, women, women of color. And it's been an ongoing issue for decades. And it wasn't until 1979 that those laws were repealed, only to find out later that they continued at California institutions like the California Department of Corrections, in, in which people, mostly women, were sterilized without consent. You hear about this in college. How are you feeling? Shocked, upset, frustrated. I mean, these are... Las señoras from the neighborhood, you know, uh, they could have been my mom. They could have been my my tía. You know, I am an immigrant to this nation as well, to Boyle Heights in East L.A. And to know that this hospital where I went as a kid, you know, and my sister, when she cut her knee, she went to General Hospital, that this is the place in which this happened, this incredible injustice. It just made me so mad, you know, to be a, a Salvi Chicana from the east side and to find out that this is something that happened in my own community and that no one cared. It's just appalling. And that anger stayed with you all these years through your career as an organizer, as a radio show host, and now as an assemblywoman. At what point do you tell yourself, okay, I want to do something about this? I'm starting my fourth year in office, and it was the first year that I came on board that I started working with my colleagues, trying to address several different issues of of justice-driven legislation. And I was so fortunate to be able to partner with the group, the California Latinas for Reproductive Justice, where we started looking at really what can be done. And a lot of the pushback in several years in the past has been, there's no money, this is not a priority, how are we going to do this, there's no research. So for the past few years, that organization, as well as California disability rights organizations, as well as groups associated with prison reform and women's justice issues in the prison system, have been trying to figure out how do we get the data. And the data really has been driven by these groups and by advocates that want to find justice. And so now that we are post-COVID and we have a historic budget, this is the third time that I'm doing this piece of legislation in my four years in office. So you can tell, like, this is a commitment that we have and that we have had and will continue to have in an effort to really seek for the first time reparations and really look at the data and find survivors, not just the ones that we have been able to identify so far, but so many more that perhaps are not even in the system now. So we're running the bill, we're running a piece of legislation that will create the first ever forced sterilization compensation fund, as well as the budget request to fund the program so that we can continue to search for survivors. And just for clarification, the bill is important because the bill uh, establishes the compensation fund. It gives budget the opportunity to put the money in the fund. While at the same time, we're moving the budget allocation. That has already been passed by both the Senate and the Assembly. It is now on the governor's desk for it to be signed. And he has a few weeks to be able to sign everything that we are sending over. So how would the program work then? So we've allocated $7 million. Two million of which will go into creating the fund, getting staff, creating the mechanisms in which we will be able to continue doing the research necessary for education and outreach. 
as well as a $25,000 compensation per individual. So this is the first step in what many are calling reparations for the state's egregious eugenics laws for survivors, for folks that are still alive. I think back on the women from the late 1960s at County Hospital that one, it's hard to locate and find because it's not a state institution, but many of whom are dying because they're elderly. And up until 2010, the State Department of Corrections at women's facilities was still doing this. So we have been able to find and really work with women my age. You know, they're in their 40s who were sterilized because they were in prison. They did something, they were incarcerated. Someone else made a decision for them on whether they were good enough to reproduce later. And so now that they're out and being able to um, turn their lives around and be back in society only to find out that they are never going to be able to have children of their own. Can you imagine what that feels like? Um, and to know that it was your state that did this. Yeah, it was, it was the government. It was the, the state government. You mentioned, you know, finding the survivors. Any idea of how many are there? Several hundreds that we've been able to identify so far uh, through state hospital records, through uh, state institution records, which makes it challenging to find county records, right? Because the county doesn't necessarily work in collaboration with the state, but it still followed the state eugenics laws. And so this is only, Gustavo, this is only the first step for us to be able to create the program, identify the program, fund the program, and then hopefully in the next few years be able to expand it. Because in my opinion, any person, male, female, gender non-binary, that has been a victim of this terrible eugenics laws and that is still alive today should be compensated. We should find a way to create some level of justice. Here's another clip from the documentary Belly of the Beast. This is Kelly Dillon, who says she was forced to get a hysterectomy at age 24. At the time of her sterilization, Kelly was incarcerated at the women's prison in Chowchilla, California. So me and four other girls were called out to get chained up in order to go out for surgery. Everything's assembly line. We're all handed a piece of paper by two nurses. They're standing there like, you guys need to hurry up and sign. We're trying to read as much as we can to understand, but for the most part, we're looking. They said, this is for you to consent to the surgery that you're having today. When I came out, I felt like something was wrong. He told me everything is fine. We took out some cysts. So then I asked him, will I still be able to have children? He was like, yeah, I don't see why not. Assemblywoman, you've obviously been in contact with survivors over the years. Can you share one of the stories that they've told you in, in the wake of the passage of this bill? The stories of survivors are perhaps some of the most compelling stories that you'll ever hear. And in the past few years that we have been carrying this piece of legislation, having survivors come to the Capitol, sit in testimony, sit in front of Assembly Public Safety or any other committee that this has been presented on and share that hurt, that pain, that trauma, that depression, that distrust towards government is very real. And in fact, it's through the actual survivor testimonies that we have been able to continuously move this bill forward with bipartisan support. And one of the things that I mentioned uh, in committee for the past few years that I've been doing this work is the right to choose includes the right to be a mom. 
and that no state government should have the authority to take that away from you. And with the testimony from survivors, one survivor in particular shared that, yes, she had been incarcerated. She committed a crime. And part of CDCR, the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, is the rehabilitation part. And that cannot be undermined. And so she was incarcerated. She was sterilized without her knowledge and consent based on a situation that she was in. She was rehabilitated. She went before the parole board. She was released. She was able to start her life all over again. And when she wanted to start a family, that's when she found out that she was unable to because she had been sterilized without her knowledge. And that, I think, is really the crux of what we're trying to accomplish and achieve and that that should never have happened to her. And in fact, a California state audit of those practices determined that they were done without proper oversight. And to know that it was a state institution that did this is incredibly egregious, which is why this compensation fund is important. And no amount of money will ever make it right. No amount of money will ever say you are 100% whole again. But it is a actual validation that something was wrong and unjust and should never have happened. And so if we could move that needle just a little bit more and thread that needle towards justice, that is exactly what we're trying to do. Thank you so much for this interview, Assemblywoman. Thank you. Thank you so much for being interested. And may I just say, like, it is the stories of women and women of color that are often unseen, untold, unheard. And so you committing time to doing this and sharing those stories and and letting the public know that this happened in California and it didn't happen years and years ago. It happened up until 2010. Seems just like yesterday that we get to tell those stories and we get to bring a little bit of sense of justice toward this issue. We'll have more after this break. Enasu Seth Valladares is the Director of Programs for California Latinas for Reproductive Justice. The nonprofit has worked for years to push the history of forced sterilizations in the state and beyond into the mainstream. They were instrumental in helping Assemblymember Carrillo push her bill forward. Ena, welcome to The Times. Thank you for having me. California began its sterilization program in the early 1900s at a time where other states were adopting similar measures. Remind everyone of what was happening in that era that made government officials and politicians sign off on something like that. During the early 1900s, um, there was basically a global eugenics movement. So this is not something that was unique to the United States, right? So Mexico, you know, Peru, and as we saw in Europe as well, right? And so what this was is ideology of how certain communities are not fit to parent or being in charge of their reproductive capacity. In California, I think there were already indigenous people here in the state, right? But we also were having an influx of other immigrants. And so it's definitely the othering. That's still an issue that we face today, that if you don't look a certain way, you know, if you're not white, if you're non-white, then you are deemed feeble-minded or incapable of being able to, to parent. And now we talk about these forced sterilization programs as being long ago, but they were on the books in California all the way up until 2014. And that's when it was finally outlawed in women's prisons. What were the stats looking like at that time? 
So there was an audit conducted by the state that found that between the years 2006 and 2010, approximately 144 people in women's prisons were sterilized by a procedure known as bilateral tubal ligation. And bilateral tubal ligations are procedures that are performed for the sole purpose of sterilization. And so my understanding of this is that folks were told that, you know, they, they had some other condition going on. And so maybe it was a cyst, you know, maybe it was something else. And so then, you know, some authorization was obtained, but I quote from the audit, in no instance did we find a female inmate whose progress notes adequately reflected that she had been counseled about her decision to be sterilized. And also out of the 144 people that, you know, that the audit revealed that 39 cases had egregious violations of state regulations that included the failure to obtain a signed consent form by the physician who had performed the procedure and violations of the required waiting period between when the incarcerated person signed the consent form and when the sterilization surgery actually took place. And so, you know, people think, oh, maybe there were there was mistakes made or maybe the people didn't understand what was going on. And what we're finding is, no, this is very systematic, you know, and this is what was found. And again, this is just a subset of records that were audited. And so I also want to lift up that the Center for Investigative Reporting also uncovered about 100 other cases in the 90s that fall into similar categories where proper authorization was not found. Flash forward decades later to 2003, where you finally have a major victory on this issue, and that was California apologizing to the victims and families of people who were forcibly sterilized. How difficult was it to accomplish that? This has been the work of, of many, 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 uh, like, you know, other organizations and other folks working on this. And You know, what they have expressed is that they thought we got the state to admit that this happened. We got the governor to issue this apology. And so next steps in terms of, you know, whether it's reparations or whether it's other types of acknowledgement are going to become a bit more forthcoming. It won't require so much explaining as to why this history is so important. And then it turns out that it it took 17 years, 18 years to actually get recognition. And then the other piece is there's another provision of our budget request and bill that is actually asking for markers to be placed at these different institutions Mm. because we want this conversation to continue. And, you know, and think about like, well, why did it happen and what were the conditions and how can we avoid this from or make it harder from happening again? And now you mentioned justice and the L.A. County Board of Supervisors passed its own motion to ask California to also offer reparations for the victims of County USC Medical Center. What happened there? Because right now they're not currently covered by the reparations bill. So your group's work obviously isn't done. How does justice on the matter look to you? Justice looks to me like this clear acknowledgement that the past is the present, right? And so not this like, oh, it happened in the past. Oh, we already apologized. Oh, we already acknowledged it. But then also scrutinizing current policies that it's not direct eugenics in in the sense that we're, you know, we're forcibly sterilizing people, but it does look like laws, for example, where, you know, you make it easier for certain forms of birth control to be um, available, but the removal, but you make it really hard for the removal of that birth control to be available. And I'm talking about 
about specifically like an IUD, right? So we make it very easy for folks to be able to get IUDs if they want it, but then it becomes a bit of a challenge if they want to remove it. And we know historically that birth control has been pushed on particular communities. And again, that is a form of controlling people's reproductive capacity, you know, how many children to have, when to have them, etc. And so this type of ideology is seeping into these policies. And so justice looks to me in those different ways. Thank you so much for this interview. Thank you. That's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, cryptocurrency in El Salvador? It's going to be a thing. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn and Denise Guerra. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress-Swanson. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editors are Shawnee Hilton and Lauren Rabb. Our intern is Ashley Brown. And our theme music is by Andrew Eatman. And special thanks to the team behind Belly of the Beast for letting us run the clips you heard in this episode of Survivors Sharing Their Stories. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news and desmadre. Gracias. <laughs>